Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. I am thrilled to have on a veteran of my industry, uh, Moshe Mayerfeld, who is a tremendous personality. He was currently run, he was currently running H New York, uh, the Young Professionals Division, but previously was a rabbi in England for twenty years, and is a visionary that is in line with the classic H Torah tradition. We speak about so much leadership, being genuine, running a team. Uh, and then, of course, the one thing you need to be able to raise half a million dollars as your first campaign in a new place. So with no further ado, I highly encourage you to take notes, to listen, and to enjoy this episode. And also, if you're able to help out their campaign, to do so. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this podcast has been brought to you by me, Jacob Rupp and Jacob Rupp's Consulting, uh, technically lift your legacy. Now, I have to be honest, I help clients often get out of their own way. And something that has really held me up was exactly the same thing, that I was in my own way. For months, people have been saying, you know, talk about your coaching, talk about how you help people, share it, etc. And I had a really hard time putting it out there. Why? Because it's not that I don't think I do a great job. I've seen amazing results from my clients, you know, 10x, uh, more than that, businesses, fixed relationships, um, helped people lose a lot of weight, people go on the path of, of making goals and fulfilling their goals, all of these things. I know I do it. And I've been in the coaching space long enough to know that there's a lot of people that don't really deliver. And the ones that do really deliver are, are worth literally their, their weight in gold because so often we're held back by stuff. And it's just like, if only I could get over that, if only I could work through that. And I help people do that. But for me, my big holdup was sharing that I do this in a big way, in a public way, especially on the podcast, because it's awkward. I don't want people to think, oh, I'm just making the podcast to, to sell you stuff or to talk about stuff. So that, that's not what I'm doing. Um, my point is like this. My coaching business is expanding. I'm taking on a few more clients. If you are someone that is struggling in the area of self-esteem, goal setting, health, relationships, or your, or your business, really, um, reach out. I don't know if we're a good fit to work with each other. What I can guarantee you is that we'll get on the phone for half an hour. Uh, I'll hear the kind of challenges you're having. You'll get a good feel if you don't know me yet of the kind of work I do, kind of program I would recommend for you. And if it's a great fit, we'll move forward. And if not, not. But I wanted to appreciate very much from the bottom of my heart, the fact that you guys all listen. I appreciate the amazing guests that I have. And I'm really thrilled to have broken through in my own life to the point where I could actually devote a segment to really make a somewhat long-winded, but I think very important advertisement. So if you want to reach out to me, the email is rabbi, R-A-B-B-I, Rupp at gmail.com. And the website is liftyourlegacy.live and at lift, your legacy, lift underscore your underscore legacy on Instagram. I think it's pretty simple. You, you know where to find me because you found the podcast. Thank you so much. 
I'm thrilled to have on today Moshe Mayerfield, who is the director of AISH New York and has been someone who has been a pioneer in the field of outreach. You can call you an international star, I guess, because you're not just in America uh, for, for over two decades. So, Reverend Mayerfield, thank you so much for coming. Tell me a little bit about your journey to how you got here and what made you you. Wow. Um, do you have a few hours? That's a, you know, that's a pretty big question. Clock's ticking. Okay. Um, well, I guess the key elements are like this. Um, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey, um, an amazing town actually called Norma, New Jersey, uh, which was a farming town of immigrants post-World War I and pre-World War II. Um, but um, the significance for me were two things. Number one was that I was a bored teenager in a small farming town. Um, but number two was I saw from my parents and grandparents who ended up staying in that town uh, what it meant to take responsibility. They, you know, they, my grandparents came from Germany uh, and they shifted their whole life. They were businessmen and, uh, in, in Germany and they came to be farmers in New Jersey, uh, but they ended up taking a lot of responsibility for the community. So I grew up with that. I grew up with, with a, a vision. It wasn't a big town, but certainly, you know, a vision of the bigger picture, not just our home, but an open home and worrying about the community and the community's needs. And that very much, I would say it was a, it was a, a formative part of my development, seeing big picture, but also I, I was bored. And as a teenager, that wasn't so easy. Um, so there was a lot of space to get in a lot of trouble. Um, one of the most important requisites of, of being a good rabbi, I think, was being a slightly rebellious youth. Um, but I had, I had to find my own path. Um, I went to um, high school in Muncie by, by Barrel Wine, um, and through my rebellious activities, ended up spending more time with him than probably anybody else in the school did. Lucky you. Which, which was a blessing, which really was a blessing in disguise. Um, and, uh, and thank God, uh, a lot of the information that I learned there didn't necessarily seek, seek in when it meant what it was supposed to, but eventually when I, you know, when I was ready to take on board what I had learned, I, I had a great, you know, a great resource. Um, and I'm still very close to the Rebel Line. Um, and also, I guess I would say, you know, when you ask me what makes me me, his vision and his big picture and what was and what will be um, is very much who I was. So I, I went to Israel when I was 17. Um, I went to, uh, to a yeshiva, if you could call it uh, a yeshiva, but a, a program for people who needed a little bit of space um, and um, did very well there, thank God. Um, fell in love with Israel. Um, also fell in love with my wife, Liat, who's Israeli and, and who grew up in Israel <clears throat> and um, eventually decided that I wanted to, 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 to live a life of meaning. Um, and we, I got married quite young. Um, I was 19 when we got married and um, ended up working in a program called Nevei Tzion, uh, which was a program for troubled youth in Israel. Um, and I did an intensive internship in drug counseling. I got involved there with lots of different things. And I thought I was living in Israel. My wife and I stayed in Israel. We were, she was Israeli. You know, I, I thought we were going to live in Israel forever. Um, and then an opportunity came up after working in Nevei for a number of years. To, um, to work with students in England. Um, and I thought, you know, what? why not a new opportunity, uh, see something different, see the world, a bit of Europe. We'd go for two years and come back to Israel. Um, two years became 20 years. Um, and after being in England for 20 years, working with schools, campuses, and young professionals, eventually I ended up um, looking for something different after 20 years. Um, ended up in Asia, New York just under a year ago. So that's... Uh, so it's very, it's very interesting because I think that pivoting, and I, I, you know, it's, I guess it's the same industry, but 
but but making a pivot after 20 years of building up is is pretty intense how did you have the fortitude to kind of put yourself out on the job market again to try to like rebuild or or to 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 create a career obviously you're not going to just like leave and bring your family for no reason how did you tweak the tweak the opportunity so that it was so good that you were able to leave something that you had built up for two decades um, I, I think every sensible friend of mine has asked that question, um, and uh, as have our children um, asked that question, and it's a good question. Look, look the, the reality is that, um, thank God, we, we did have a lot of success in England. I was the rabbi of a shul as well the last four years that I was in England, um, and, and Baruch Hashem, we built an empire of students um, with HUK, um, saw a lot of success um, with so many different people. Um, I was fortunate enough in the last two years that I lived in England uh, to, to be the, to officiate at 20 different weddings. Uh, excuse me, I said 20, uh, sorry, 20 years there, 50 weddings in the last two years um, that we were there. My wife and I developed a, a whole premarital uh, relationship and course and development of, of learning with students. Um, and uh, so, so we saw, you know, the, the success, um, but I guess on a certain level, you know, as we, we hired a new team and younger people of the team, we felt that we had built, you know, that we had grown in the way that we could. And I don't believe that life is about being stagnant. Um, and and the, the providence sort of worked out that um, a number of our children, we have Bar Hashem, a large family of eight children, um, and four of them, really five of them were actually going through natural transitions anyway, uh, either finishing college, finishing high school, finishing elementary school. And it was sort of like a, a natural way of, of kind of seeing an opportunity. And we never really wanted to be in the same place for very long. You know, this world's about doing and being active. Um, so we, we felt like at the same time, about a year ago, maybe 13, 14 months ago, we also were invited a number of times uh, to be scholars and residents. My wife is also a very skilled educator. You can get her on your podcast um, at a different time. We'll do it. Uh, she, she's amazing. And both of us together and separately were invited to do a number of speaking engagements across America. Um, and one thing led to another. And when we saw um, what was out there and what we saw the need that was out there and taking our success and sort of spreading it a little bit. You know, we always said that we were in England because it was a small country that was able to be changed. Uh, and, and thank God through HUK, we, we really saw change. Um, but, um, but, but it was always a little bit of an incubator. It was an opportunity to, to learn how to do something for a bigger scale. There's nothing as, you know, in terms of the Jewish community, uh, there's nothing as big as the you know, the, the scale of people that live in America. Our dream is still to get home to Israel one day, but for the moment, really, we felt that uh, our skills and our needs were, were really necessary to, to be elsewhere. So we picked up on a, on a risky move, admittingly, um, and started from scratch in New York City. So, okay, there's a, cu a couple of different questions about that that, that that are fascinating. I think the first thing is when you're trying to build a movement and the concept and, you know, after so much time in the field, you know, the, the world is very unhappy about judgment and unhappy about, you know, you bring a person in and they all have the same growth trajectory. And if you built a meaningful movement, it must mean that you were able to both guide and direct without turning people off or offending them. How did you manage that? Wow. Um, it's a great question, and I, I guess 
the thing that excites me most, look, there are two things that excites me most in this world. Um, one is people, and, and the second is Judaism. When I have an opportunity to connect those two things, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a good place. Um, but one of the most beautiful things about Judaism is that it's not monolithic. Uh, you know, one of my, my favorite insights in the Torah actually comes from the end of the, the portion of, of Parshat Yitzro, um, where, where it's actually almost separate. It doesn't seem like it belongs there. But the, the portion is, is the uh, giving of the Torah and the, the Ten Commandments. And at the end of the portion, we're taught a lesson about the altar. Um, and the altar has to have a ramp, not stairs, in order to get up to it. The altar was very tall. It was 10 amos, about 20 feet in the air. Uh, and in order to get up to the top, you needed to build, the Torah tells us you need to build a ramp, not stairs. Uh, and and I, I saw a beautiful interpretation of that once that really touched me. Um, and I think that, I, that we built our home and always, um, and, and our education based on this idea. And the premise that I saw was beautiful was that the, the problem with stairs is that they're uniform. Everybody going up those stairs is going to go up or down those steps exactly the way they're built. If the stairs are three, four, or five inches, whatever they are, everyone going up that, that steps, is, those steps are going to be doing it identical. And the Torah's message to humanity is that if you're trying to achieve greatness, if you're trying to get to the top of the altar, the, the pinnacle of greatness and the highest spiritual place of the tabernacle, if you're trying to become great, there is no uniform way to get up there. And a ramp allows for individuality. A, a ramp allows me to take a one-inch step and you Jacob, to take a 10-inch step, and then maybe different days, different size steps. Um, and there isn't a, a uniform way of getting up to the top. Um, and, and I think that that's really what Judaism teaches. There's 70 facets to the Torah, different ways of seeing things. And I think perhaps it is one of the challenges that we find in the community today, seeing a monolithic approach. Um, and, and I just don't believe in it. And I think that's what Judaism is about. Uh, and, and we need to see a bit more color in the community and not, not just pink, excuse me. But, but we need it's to a nice color. And you got the pocket, uh, the pocket square. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's um, a European pocket square. But, uh, you know, but we need to see a bit more color. We need to see a little bit, you know, openness to people doing things differently, seeing things differently, and allowing people to be their own way of connecting to God. And, and, and I will say, if, if I can just say one other thing, one of the things that really taught me from the very beginning, uh, one of the most inspiring moments that I had with the founder in Rosh Hashima, the head of the, of the, of the organization, Aish, um, I had a meeting with Rav Noach by chance. Rav Noach Weinberg, who founded Aish, a true visionary and a great person who managed to to really make a remarkable difference in the Jewish world, um, where he used to teach a class often called Four Misconceptions. Um, you know, dealing with the building blocks of Judaism, helping people sort of change their mindset about, about what they thought Judaism was and what religion was about. Um, and one of the four messages that he used to share in that class uh, was the idea that, that we don't judge. That we can't judge other Jews, and, and you don't know who's closer to God, and and and... You know, and, and you have to let people, you know, you, you don't know who's greater, who's worse, who's better or, or different in the eyes of God. And I, and I challenged him. I actually took him. He was teaching a group. We, we had a group of 200 uh, university students from England that we brought to New York. We actually had a, a class in the UN. Um, and the Rav Noach spoke before, and then the, the representative of the UN spoke after. And interestingly, I'm, I might get in trouble for this, but the, the fellow from the UN heard the end of Rav Noach, um, and he, he actually heard the last five minutes, and he got up and he said, that never before have such relevant words been spoken, spoken in a building dedicated to irrelevance. <laughs> um, that was his sum up of, of Rabbi Weinberg's ideas. But basically, I challenged Rabbi Weinberg in the car. Um, I went to pick him up, and I heard his, you know, he taught this class, 
And I said to him, by definition, isn't working for an organization like Aish that is teaching Jews about Judaism, isn't it by definition somewhat judgmental? I have information that you don't. And isn't it, you know, isn't it a, a contradiction? You're, you're preaching this idea that we don't judge, but I know something that you don't. Isn't that inherently? And he actually said something remarkable to me. He said, Moshe, if you think that, if you believe that, you have no room to be working for me. Uh, and he said that, and he said like this, he said, when you meet another Jew and you, you know, you're engaging with them or talking to them, it's very possible that they have a closer relationship than God, to God than you do. You have no idea. They might be working on themselves more than you. They might be doing something with a bit more effort than you or connected to you. You don't know where they are in life. And, and it's not about where you are. It's about how hard you're trying to grow to the next step, he said. But it's not, he said, there's no way that you could possibly know in God's eyes who's greater. He said, now it's also possible that you have something that you want to share with them that if they knew that, they'd be even greater, right? He said, but you don't know that you're better than them. Right? So you share Shabbat with somebody. You go invite them to your Friday night dinner table and they've never experienced Shabbat before or they've never had a meaningful Passover Seder before. You invite, that doesn't mean you're better than them. Right? He says, but it could be that you have something. You've tasted a good restaurant. You've read a good book. You want to share it with your friends. He said, if you know this is true and you know this is beautiful and you want to share it with somebody who doesn't have it, it doesn't mean that you're better than them. It just means that they may be able to even enhance their lives even more uh, by, by engaging with something that you were able to teach to them. So I think that, you know, to answer your question about individuality and about you know, pr providing a framework where people can be themselves and grow themselves, you know, every one of those 50 weddings that we officiated, I promise you, was unbelievably different in what they practiced and what they believed and what they wore, right? And, and that's the beauty of human beings and that's the beauty of the Jewish people. Twelve tribes, different people, different perspectives, creating one united nation, ideally. That's beautiful. So what I'm hearing from that is the idea of kind of tempering your ego that you don't see yourself as a, you know, the, the, the classic idea of a missionary where I'm going to go out and, you know, preach to the world, but rather it's a, a level of humility that we all have something to bring to the table. And this is my particular skill set, and you have your particular skill set. And, and I, this is hard, but I think that, but you can't fake this really if you're genuinely interested in learning from them the same way that they're learning from you, you will create that feeling of mutual value and respect. So that's very important. As the Mishnah says that, you know, we can learn the most from our students. And I genuinely believe that. I've, I've, you know, they have what to offer. They, they, you know, they have what to gain. And, and our students have become our best friends. You know, maybe it's because we don't have time for other friends. But, right. you know, our, our students have become our closest and bestest friends. And I, and I you know, I genuinely believe that it's a mutual relationship of growth and, and connectivity, looking for meaning and searching out, finding that meaning in the best possible way. Beautiful. So now that you've had, you know, your 20-year um, incubation period, and now you're ready to release out onto the world, um, two, two questions. One is, clearly something resonated with the American audience that you found was compelling. So what is, what are those lessons that American Jewry is looking for? And when you're looking to create a really big movement, like what's your big plans for New York? Okay, um, great question. Um, I would say like this, two, a couple of things. Um, f first of all, I, again, one, when I brought an English group to America once, we, we were hosted um, by Howard Jonas at IDT. Um, and um, he, he brought us in and we had a seminar in his building and he gave us a beautiful lunch there. It was a, it was a really beautiful day. Um, and um, I walked into the hallway to the entrance lobby of IDT 
And there was a saying from Hillel on one side, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? Uh, on the other side was a saying, a, a quote from Ronald Reagan, the great American president, and it said, America is too large for small dreams. Yeah. Um, and that quote really resonated with me. Um, America is too small for, too large for small dreams. Um, and I think that's true about the Jewish people. You know, uh, we're, we're people with a huge goal of changing the world for, for morality and peace and, you know, tikkun olam, making the world a better place. We have a, a, we say every day in our prayers. We have to fix the world for the Almighty. We're looking to make a world of goodness and greatness where, where people can connect to, you know, to good and kind, charity, etc. We have a big mission. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, the incubation in England was a, was a good starting point, and I have nothing negative to say about it. But, you know, because I'm looking for something bigger, because Liat and I are looking to create something with a big picture, I think America fits that very well. Um, it's, it's the draw, it's the excitement of New York City, and it's the excitement of, uh, of um, you know, of, of the country at, at large. Because we'd like to start with New York, but we're not stopping. It's a, it's a, it's a big country, it's a big world vision. Um, but ultimately, I think people see that way. I, I think Americans, think big, they, they see big, they talk big. Now there's, there's downsides to that as well, right? Because everybody is, you know, everything is huge and I'm gonna tell you a story that's amazing, right? And, and you know, I've learned to stick in so many more adjectives to, you know, to, to add, you know, to the, to the vernacular and to the language because if you don't pump it up, it, right, the people don't even listen. But, um, but I think the, the, the big picture, the big vision, um, the, 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 uh, the inability to, to see things small, um, was compelling to me, and, I, and I'm working, you know, with the, with the dreams of that we're working and that we're starting with with the New York crowd and the young professional scene here. I'm seeing that even on a micro level, even just on, on the individual level. If I can just give you an example, you know, people ask me, "How did you start?" And I don't, I don't really know how we started. You know, we came. I didn't know anybody here really, um, but you start talking to people, and, and I, my Judar is very strong. I can spot a Jew from a mile away, and, and you know, and I'm not exactly embarrassed or or shy, and I can talk to people. So I started, you know, talking to people, and actually, a, a student of mine from England who's recently moved. Uh, to New York, um, invited me to join him for, for a Young Professionals Leadership event that he was involved with. Um, I went to this event and I, and I met somebody um, and I invited him um, for a Shabbat meal. We were talking and networking, etc. Um, and I invited him to join us for a Shabbat meal. And um, he, he said, yeah, I'd love to come, whatever. So we exchanged email addresses. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. He, he asked me, and I said, bring a friend. So he said, how many can I bring? So I facetiously said, you know, 20, right? Um, so, you know, he laughed and I laughed and I'm, okay. Now, in the meantime, I invited other guests and, you know, and again, maybe this is the answer because we're, we're a little bit crazy. We had just arrived in America. We didn't really have our furniture yet that was being ordered and shipped from different places, some from England, some we bought new. And, you know, we, we ended up getting tables and chairs. We just, you know, we had an empty house and we were already planning on having around 20 guests for that Friday night dinner. Um, and I invited other people and I had him on my list as a plus one. Him and plus one. Anyway, I, on Thursday that week, I, I messaged everybody to remind them that we're starting at this time, this is our address, et cetera. And he messaged me back with an apology. And he said, I'm really sorry. I'm, I only have 18 coming with me, right? Um, so now we had 38 guests, right? Not just the 20 that I thought we had. But another... Who started sweating more, your wife with extra cooking or that you would have to tell your wife? 
I, I got to be honest, my wife didn't flinch. Liat was just right. like, okay, this is what we need extra. Go here and get the chairs. Go, you know, the, she started cooking more. She started, you know, I, I went to Williamsburg. You know, we live in the Lower East Side and Williamsburg is just over the bridge um, and shops don't close there until two, three o'clock in the morning on Thursday night. I, I bought more raw ingredients and Liat was, you know, just cooked it up. And, you know, she was teaching that morning as well. And she had a fundraising meeting. Like she was juggling the whole thing. And, and thank God. Right. But that guy is an example to me of thinking big. Right. And he's become a real partner in what we do. Um, you know, he brought 20 people the next week as well. And, you know, he's actually been volunteering for us and, and really making a big difference in what we do. Would you have, if you didn't joke, saying like, you know, a lot of times I think it's just an interesting idea that the jokes that we make actually could happen if we give them more credence. You know what I'm saying? It's like, how many people do you want me to bring? And you're like, you, you actually would want 18 or 20. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, but yeah. because we get stuck in this, like, you know, I can't over ask or I can't see this bigger or I can't really ask for what I want. We only, you know, we only expect that one. And so we're pleasantly surprised when they bring the 18, but, but I, I wonder how much that reflects our, our general approach to life and reality and everything like that. That's a hundred percent true. Very, I mean, spot on. Thank you for sharing that. I, I love that because I think that we need to learn to talk more in the things that we really believe. And I'll give you an example. And I, I was thinking about saying this earlier, and it just reminded me, it resonated. Um, you know, about the things you asked me, like what makes us what we do and how do we do it. Um, one of the things that that for me was one of the starting points of of, of being in this as a as a life mission. Um, when I was working in Israel still, um, and this story really, I think, is a, is a, is a formative moment for me, um, working in, a, in this program in Israel. Um, and there was a fellow who, I don't want to get into exact details, but he was getting himself in a lot of trouble, drugs and alcohol and dealing and all kinds of different challenges. And I was very, very close with him, working with him very, very closely. Um, and thank God he, he did really well. He ended up putting his life together, married with children, has a beautiful job. Um, involved in the Jewish community. He's, he's a real credit to himself, to his family, and to, the, to our people. Um, but um, he called me when I moved to England before Rosh Hashanah, and he, and he called to wish me a Happy New Year and say thank you for the things that we, you know, we engaged with in Israel. And, and I was really chuffed and really sort of you know, appreciative that he called. Um, and I said to him, and I'm, you know, we'll call him Mark for, for argument's sake. I said, Mark, who would have thought? And he said something to me amazing. And I think this really resonates with what you were saying about saying it. He said, Moshe, you did. You believed in me. You said that I could do it. And, and when I said to him, you know, who would have thought? I, you know, maybe it was just a word, but, but he felt it. I, I'm not 100% sure at all of the time, especially when he was arrested. I'm, I'm not so sure that I thought that, he, you know, I was convinced that he was going to make it. But he felt like I believed in him because I said so. And, and I think that the words of encouragement and really, you know, that is, I did believe in him. And I ultimately, you know, said that I believed in him. And often those kinds of, of things that we say, you know, make, make help create the reality. It's such a powerful idea that I, I see myself a lot, which is that when another person believes in us, it allows us to do whatever we want. The problem is that we find a lot of times that people, how do you articulate your belief in somebody else? There's like a lot, you have to know a lot before you can really articulate your belief and mean it. And one of the things that I work on with myself is that I should be the voice of believing in me. It's like if someone says, I just had this crazy experience where, you know, I had a certain, I had a certain fee that I charged for my coaching and I was talking to a guy and he says, oh, you could easily charge, you know, three times that. And I thought my fee was pretty steep. 
And, um, and as soon as he said that, all of my concerns like just melted. I'm like, 100%, you're right. And, and I was so, it's like, where was this guy or where was I for such a long time before this message? It must have been, I did believe it. I just didn't want to let myself believe it, if that makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think that you know, I don't know how much of a plug I can make. You, make plug, you, plug away, my friend. You know, we have a big fundraising campaign next week. You know, and we're trying to raise big money to make a difference in New York. Now, if anyone watching this can you know get in touch and help, I'd be appreciative. But you know, I think the same is true with fundraising. I, I hate fundraising. It's, I don't. I don't want to be asking people for charity and you know and feel like a charitable case and whatever. But if we're going to make a difference, we need the support in order to do it. And I often feel that the, you know even just the sums that you ask for people, you know, from people when it comes to fundraising, and and this is something that you know we've learned over the years that you know you don't ask, you don't get. But you know if you're if you're a you know if you're I'll tell you a little secret. Okay, we're we're trying to raise five hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Now we were debating how much we could raise in the day and with matchers, et cetera. And, and I wanted to raise, you know, we were talking about 350, four, 450. And I said, we have to raise it to 500,000. And the reason is, and it's funny that I even said 500,000 is because I wanted to raise a half a million dollars, right? Half a million dollars is very different than $450,000, right? We're an organization that's looking to change the perspective of, you know, make Judaism relevant to all Jews in, in New York, right? We're, that's, that's our vision, that's what we're trying to do. And if, you're, if, you're, if you speak like that, so then you, you can make it happen, right? But if you're always thinking about little things and little, you know, now, the success comes from detail, caring about the individuals, worrying about the human beings, you know, it's not about, about the money and it's not about, you know, j just the big, it's the balance between thinking big and then dealing with the practicalities of the individuals. Also, you could say that depending on our perspective on money, sometimes we care a lot more about money than we care about people. Like we can have a very big vision for what we want to do, but then feel guilty to ask for the money to do it. Right. But, you know, one of, the, one of the major principles that I learned and then try to teach is that it's the, the, the more money, the more value that is perceived. So if I am doing a project and it costs you zero dollars, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why birthright is, is kind of flattering. Uh, I can say what I want because it's my show, I guess. But, uh, and, and in general, like I had, this is, it's just so great. Actually, I had a, a guy who was talking about a program. The program sounds fantastic. And then somewhere down the caveat of the program, it's like, and we'll pay you a hundred dollars. And I'm like, what? Like, why would you pay them $100? You're giving them these tools, right? right? And it's amazing that, you know, the more that you pay or the more that you, you know, if you're taking a fat salary, then you are thinking about, you know, I don't think that most CEOs who are, who are honest, and I, and I think that this is the majority of them, who are taking a lot of money, see that their value to the company, their value to the marketplace, that's what it costs, you know what I'm saying? That's what, if you get that fat bonus, it's because I was motivated and I massively increased the value of the company. And if I got five bucks extra or someone giving me a, a, you know, a, a, an iPad or something like that, okay, so I'm not that valuable here. So I think that that linking the values that we see in Judaism, like you know, trying to change the world and the, the, the financial uh, reality of what it's going to cost. It's like, you know, you want Jeff Bezos wasn't like, you know, hitting people up for five bucks when he was raising funds for Amazon. He had a really big vision that costs money, but then it does pay back if you're able to operate on that big scale. Yeah. Well, one of my very closest friends, a philanthropist who, who was blessed with resources and, and a very big giver in England. Um, the first time I ever asked him for a donation for Aish, you know, he, 
he encouraged me and he said to me, you know that, I'm glad you asked. And I was like, okay, you know, me too. Um, and he gave beautifully. But he said to me that people often complain that the charities you know, don't have enough givers, that the people aren't enough giving to the charities. He said to me as a philanthropist, he said, I think there aren't enough askers, right? Which was such a mindset shift to me. Now, don't get me wrong. Every time I go into a meeting, I'm still a little bit, you know, resident. I'm still uncomfortable and I, you know, I still have to remind myself that, but his words really helped me shift my mindset. He said, we're not asking enough. And if we asked more and we asked, you know, for bigger, we would be able to, to, to tap into the resources, thank God, that, that we're blessed with and, and, and be able to, to really make an impact and a difference to so many more people. Yeah, it's definitely a holdup that I think that we don't allow other people the opportunity to buy into something that's important. One of the things that always, um, as, a, as a person that became observant, I don't like the fact that some people who are already observant kind of think like, oh, there's different tracks and, you know, this is what I'm doing, but, you know, you're kind of special back of the bus type of guy. And so, you know, this is works for you. And if there was any message that I tried to pass on to people, it's like, this is your problem. It's my problem. It's your problem. And, you know, maybe I have the skills of being able to teach and you've been successful in your business, but it's like as much it's my problem as it's your problem. So it's like, you know, go out to your business. Don't, don't become a second rate teacher if that's not what you're passionate about. And, and just like, you know, it's like, don't hit up the, the guys that are managing the organization for, you know, the big donor gifts. What do you think God made you so successful for? If not to, this is your problem and together we're going to do this. You know, it's like, it's a very interesting mindset, mindset shift that the nonprofit and the needs in order to go into the world of profit and therefore make the nonprofit successful. I was interviewing you, but now I'm rolling. So that was very exciting. Yeah, that's good. That's good. This is your show. I'm just a guest. Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi said, listen. so Rabbi, I, this is what we have to do. We have to, I would love for you to leave the, the leader, the, the listeners with something practical um, we will definitely roll this out prior to the date of your fundraiser. And, you know, By the way, I just want to say to all the listeners that this was not planned. Like the, the, this no, is, not, not at all. Nothing to do with the fundraiser. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful and thank you for that. But, you know, it's, it's part of the conversation. Yeah, definitely. So the question would be, leave, leave us with some, you know, some 25 years in the making wisdom and, and kind of what we expect to see from your organization when you raise the half a million dollars? Wow. Okay. Um, well, first of all, just, just to, you know, for full disclosure, the half a million dollars is, is only part of our budget. You know, that's, that's uh, you know, um, we're trying to raise more than that throughout the year. Um, You're already thinking bigger. I love it. <laughs> um, so some parting wisdom. You know, I mentioned the, the, the marriages and, and the fifth, well, now it's more because I've done a couple in America already, but of the nearly 60 marriages that I've been involved with in the last two years, um, three years, I, I think something that is very personal, very passionate that I, that I feel very strongly about, and I guess, you know, for some, for some last messages, I'd like to say it like this. Um, you know, I play basketball. Uh, it's, it's a passion of mine. I love basketball. Uh, follow basketball. I, I play basketball. Um, and um, we, we, another... Um, a couple of us, I started a league in England, which was again, a little bit against the grain because it's not such a popular sport in England. But I discovered a whole underworld of people who actually love basketball there. And I became very close to it. You know, it was, it was uh, I mean, it wasn't officially a Jewish league, but basically 98% of the people that played with us were Jewish. Um, and actually one of the fellows who wasn't Jewish was a, a, in college with another guy. His name was Mohammed. Um, and I, I once was in, in London um, and uh, walking with my kids 
And um, you know, literally out of nowhere, this I hear this voice scream, "You rabbi!" And I turn around, and it's a, a bunch of, of Muslim youth. And you know, when you, when you get a call like that, you're not really quite sure exactly what's coming. And then I noticed that it was Mohammed who I play basketball with, and gave me a big hug. I think his friends were more confused than my kids, but um, it, it was one of those beautiful life moments. Um, but um, but essentially, basketball became a, a very interesting connection that I had. Um, a, a beautiful. I ended up officiating at a number of the basketball buddies' weddings, um, and and very tragically, unfortunately, one of the guys who was one of the, the biggest advocates of basketball amongst his friends, et cetera. He, he was very tall as a young man. And then, um, so he got into basketball when he was like 11, 12 years old. Um, I, I, um, I spoke under his chuppah, um, him and his, his beautiful wife, um, under his chuppah and, and I officiated their wedding. Um, and literally 51 um, weeks later, I had the, um, the experience of speech, speaking at his funeral. Um, he passed away. He actually had cancer when they got married, but they didn't realize it. And unfortunately, um, had a very quick uh, illness and, and, and very sadly didn't even c- celebrate his, his first wedding anniversary. We actually renamed the Basketball League after him. Um, and uh, it was a beautiful thing. And, and the basketball really became a, you know, we, we made a memorial service. And for many people, his wedding and the memorial service were some of the first Jewish touch points they had. And, and the love and the care that I kind of engaged with that was, was very, it was very meaningful for people to see and to be engaged with. I'm still very close with, with his widow and with her family and with, with his family on regular contact, etc. cetera. Um, the reason I, I bring up that story is because, you know, th- there was an amazing moment where um, I, I, I walked into to the, to, to the funeral, um, and I was gonna tear Korea where we were tear our clothes with the family um, prior to everyone coming into the, to the hall. Um, and I walked in and I, and I burst out crying. He was a friend. He was someone who I really loved dearly. Um, and um, th- there was another rabbi in the room, um, and, and I, I, I'm happy to say his name publicly, Rabbi Levine from South Amsterdam Synagogue, who the family was associated with. Um, and um, although I was officiating, he was there because he was connected to the family, um, and he gave me the best hug I ever received in my life. Um, and, and he whispered in my ear, it's okay, even the rabbi needs to cry. Um, and, and it was an amazing moment, and it really kind of reminded me sort of the, you know, the, the individual care. Yeah, we got to be pastoral, we have to be there for people and, and, and care about the, but it's, this is real. This is not Hollywood. We're not, you know, I'm sorry, I know you're, you know, in that side of the world, but, you know, this is not show business. This is genuine. And, and I think that, you know, the weddings and, and, yeah, we perform a little bit at weddings and we make it meaningful while being funny. And, but the, the, the essence of what we do is, is genuine. Um, and, and Judaism is genuine. And God is genuine. And morality is genuine. And the more we connect to that, the more we, you know, we're passionate about that the more we're going to see success in everything that we're doing. And, and I think there's so much, so much beauty in our heritage. Um, you know, I, I love, I love being Jewish and I love what Judaism has to offer us. And, and that's why we're, we want to connect, you know, so many people to, to the heritage, to the future, um, and, and really be able to, to bring those things together. So we have big plans to, to connect every Jew in New York um, to their heritage and, and being part of this amazing future that we have together. Um, and I guess the things that I've been engaged with are really, you know, a, a, a taste of, of that. And please God, um, just the warm up act, because, you know, we're, we're, 
we're, we've got lots to do and we're, we're hungry and we're energetic and we're interested and, you know, and, and let's do it together. Beautiful. Um, Rabbi, please tell people how they can find out more about Aish, about the fundraiser, about you. Um, so um, Aish uh, New York uh, is aishny.com. Um, you can email me at Moshe at aishcenter.com. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you for doing this. I have so much more to say, but you know, it's... Uh... We'll do it again. <laughs> Looking forward. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.